Radio Televisieren. I think I like the sentiment of the Abbey, and perhaps because it is the National Theatre. It's probably difficult to write a play just now, at the moment, anyhow. I mean, we've pretty well exhausted the war, and I don't think that the time's perhaps as dramatic as it used to be. We probably just haven't the events to write about. Everything's too new. I don't think it served the purpose it was intended to serve, and it's the standard generally there has gone down to the kind of kitchen comedy kind of thing. It's more or less given itself over to farce. To the Abdi uh, pantomime and the Christmas, you know, the bilingual, I enjoyed that very, very much. Although I don't know a whole lot of Irish, still I enjoy it very much indeed. The old Abbey Theatre as the new begins. Norris Davidson offers some of its history, extracts from its plays, and writings about the theatre. The heroic sound of bronze that commands attention before the Abbey curtain rises. The dimming of the lights, the elimination of surroundings. This is all in the tradition of European theatre and Les Coups de Marteau. The Abbey Theatre. The Abbey in Abbey Theatre is not important. The word represents certain premises containing a stage and named for a neighbouring street. What is important is National Theatre in National Theatre Society Limited, the controlling body. And the all-important thing is theatre. Ireland had playhouses before the Abbey but no true theatre. No place where the past and present could be invoked. No sounding board for the minds of the poets whose words had been heard in little halls and back drawing rooms. There was no permanent home either for the actors who presented the early works of Yeats and Moore, Lady Gregory and Edward Martin. The most important of these actors were the brothers Fay, Frank and Willie. Frank taught elocution and the brothers presented little comedies in halls and what were known as coffee palaces. They became interested in the early stirrings of Irish drama and Yeats gave them his Kathleen Houlihan. They presented it in a hall in Clarendon Street. But the Fays had to work by day. So had many of the later actors. Barry Fitzgerald was a civil servant and when he had been given a certain part, we read, Barry Fitzgerald is going to have a weak sickness to work at it. A year before the Abbey Theatre opened, Yeats and Lady Gregory were able to pay W.G. Fay enough to free him from his outside work, and they were well rewarded by the great artistic contribution the brothers made to the new theatre. But five years later they left. There had been disagreements. The excitement of the theatre's early years was over, and now stock had to be taken and policies framed. It was through Singh and Lady Gregory and most particularly the phase that the influence of the French theatre, past and present, extended to the Abbey, when, over 60 years ago, the theatre of the mind found a theatre of wood and stone to dwell in. Ours is the only theatre in Dublin where real drama is being given. One has the Maid of the Mountains, the other variety shows. The sight of the Abbey audience 
makes me glad to have been born. Lady Gregory. The modern theatre is merely servant girlism. I make no distinction between the kitchen and the drawing room variety. George Moore. The hall in Marlborough Street that became the Abbey was made available by a generous Englishwoman who was interested in the theatre, Miss Horniman, and the theatre was eventually taken over from her. Miss Horniman made the building, not the theatre. We bought it from her when she stopped her help. The Irish National Theatre was in existence before her. We did not take it over from her. Lady Gregory. There were two theatres in that building, the abstract thing and the theatre of wood and stone. I told Robinson in speaking of the theatre that we must have two horizons, one the far one, the laying of it on the threshold of eternity, the nearer one, the coming of home rule or whatever the new arrangement is that must come. We must keep that theatre something we should be proud to show. The theatre was founded in poetry. Yeats lived poetry. And when he began to bring his imaginings to the stage, he imposed himself on the technique of acting, as it was then known, and adapted it to his own needs, discarding familiar gestures and imposing the formal and hieratic, discarding the rhythms of familiar speech for the new measures of the poet's theatre. But actors lacking music do most excite my spleen. They say it is more human to shuffle, grunt and groan not knowing what unearthly stuff rounds a mighty scene. So said the man in the golden breastplate under the old stone cross. We have to write plays that will make the theatre a place of intellectual excitement, a place where the mind goes to be liberated, as it was liberated by the theatre of Greece and England and France and certain great movements of history. W.B. Yeats certain great movements of history. The Abbey Theatre was a movement in itself and part of a movement of history. It was carried on the wings of a movement of liberty. It was symptomatic of its time and necessary to it. It spoke to the people. Kathleen seemed more rebellious than I ever heard it. It is a hard service they take that help me. Many that are wedged now will be pale-cheeked. Many that have been free to walk the hills and the bogs and the rushes will be sent to walk hard streets in far countries. Many a good plan will be broken. Many that have gathered money will not stay to spend it. Many a child will be born and there will be no father at its christening to give it a name. They that had red cheeks will have pale cheeks for my sake. And for all that, they will think they are well paid. They shall be remembered forever. They shall be alive forever. They shall be speaking forever. The people shall hear them forever. Did that play of mine send out certain men the English shot? It's more than probable, it's certain, that words in Yeats's Kathleen Houlihan did fire certain hearts. It's unlikely that all those people became active in the revolution, but the words opened their minds to what was to come. 
and other words were to ring from the Abbey stage when the struggle was over and the new state was beginning to breathe and to move, when the theatre was looking back to the immediate past instead of the heroic past and expressing what it saw in raw and real language. Imagination turning to life itself for excitement. The new writer, O'Casey, wrote of what he had seen and lived, and in tragic comic fashion, his words often put into perspective the means of revolution, the acts of guerrilla warfare that had been deplored by many. Gang of assassins potting at us from behind roofs. That's not playing the game. Why don't they come out in the open and fight fair? Fight fair? A few hundred scrolls at shops with a couple of guns and rosary beads against a hundred thousand trained men with horse, foot and artillery. And he wants us to fight fair. Do you, do you want us to come out in our skins and throw stones? Are these four all that are here? Four, that's all, Sergeant. Well, come on. O'Casey's idea for poetic plays were rooted in his realistic plays. And these first plays were written because the Abbey offered a stage for them. All the thought in Ireland for years past has come through the Abbey. You have no idea what an education it has been to the country. Sean O'Casey to Lady Gregory. I think the Celtic theatre will emerge all right. For if it is not a manifest intention of the gods that there should be such a thing, why the mania for writing drama which is furiously absorbing Irish writers? George Russell. It is the existence of the theatre that has created playwriting among us. Mr. Boyle has written stories and only turned to plays when he had seen our performances in London. Mr. Colum claimed to have turned to drama for our sake, and Mr. Fitzmaurice, Mr. Ray, and Mr. Murray, a national schoolmaster, would certainly not have written, but for the chance of having the work acted. I asked Mr. Robinson how he had begun and he said he had seen our players in Cork and gone away thinking of nothing else than to write a play for us to produce. He wrote and sent us the Clancy name. These were some of the new men in the time before the century came of age. The homely characters spoke the language of the people on a stage from which were heard on other nights the creations of Singh and of Yeats. keep this oath, and from this day I shall be what you please, my chicks, my nestlings. Yet I have thought you were of those that praised whatever life could make the pulse run quickly, even though it were brief, and that you held that a free gift was better than a forced. But that's all over. I will keep it too. I never gave a gift and took it again. If the wild horse should break the chariot pole, it would be punished. Should that be in the oath? in all things to Conaher and to uphold his children. We are one being as these flames are one. I give my wisdom 
and I take your strength. Now, thrust the sword into the flame and pray that they may serve the threshold and the hearthstone with faithful service. Oh, pure glittering ones that should be more than wife or friend or mistress, give us the enduring will, the unquenchable hope, the friendliness of the sword. From the first play to be seen on the Abbey stage when poetic drama found a permanent home, on Boyle Strand by Yeats. But we must get it into our heads that the Abbey Theatre would come to naught but for Lady Gregory's talent for rolling up little incidents into one-act plays. George Moore. Yet I find verse is more than prose can be, the apex of the flame, the point of the diamond. The Irish theatre movement began like the Norwegian theatre movement under Bjornsson and Ibsen. Norway, which had no native theatre at all until the violinist Ole Bull founded the Bergen Theatre, started with poetic plays of the heroic age. Fifty years later in Dublin, Yeats was putting Cuchulain on the stage and Singh was to evoke Dermot and Grania. Ibsen took over the direction in Bergen and the theatre passed to social comment and satire expressed in everyday language. Fifty years later in Dublin, the Irish realists, with a stage waiting for them, a stage as fresh and as bare as Norway's had been, were to fill it with characters from the villages and small towns, characters who were within everyone's experience. Lennox Robinson wrote in Church Street through the character of Aunt Moll. I tell you, me boy, there's comedy and tragedy trailing their skirts through the mud of Church Street if you'd only the eye to see them. But Yeats was to say, Not the theatre we set out to create, but the first doing of something for which the world is ripe. Something that will be done all over the world and done more perfectly. The making articulate of all the dumb classes, each with its own knowledge of the world, its own dignity. But all objective, with the objectivity of the office and the workshop, of the newspaper and the street, of mechanism and of politics. Yeats. And now, talking of Yeats as a dramatist, the voice of Lennox Robinson, recorded eight years ago. The first thing a dramatist needs is a good subject. Yeats had almost always an unerring eye for situation. A very pure and holy woman sells her soul to the devil to save other souls. A father unwittingly kills his only child. The powers of evil steal away a girl's soul and her life. A poet starves himself for his ideal. A play actress makes herself the queen. The unbeliever at the moment of death tries to find God. The spirits of Swift and Vanessa appear as a modern seance. The mysteries of Calvary and of the resurrection. These, in a few words, are the greatest plays. Each of them is a simple, dramatic anecdote, an admirable substance on which to build a play. But besides, Stage experience and his first two plays, The Countess Kathleen and The Land of Heart's Desire, were written, I quote his words, before I had any practical experience and I knew from the performance that they were full of defects. And again, the last act was written long ago and I had seen so few plays that I had pleasure in stage effects. 
Probably his play or reading was confined to the Elizabethan dramatists. He several times said to me, almost apologetically, that the only dramatist he really had ever cared for was Shakespeare. Also, we must remember that when he began to write for the stage in the early 90s, the London theatre was at a very low ebb and was not the place to attract a person of culture and intelligence. The tide was to turn within a few years, but was to bring on the crest of the wave the kind of play he least cared for. Ibsen and the early shores and the English realistic work. That was the theatre Yeats cried out against. We have made a prison house for ourselves out of paint and canvas. But the great thing was that, whether for verse drama or the presentation of the everyday, the stage was there, board laid against board, curtains to part and show the mystery to the audience, scenery, the ropes to move it, the braces to support it, lights to turn all to moonlight or sunshine or mist, and the obedient actors were there to die or to laugh, to cry or go mad, to love and to kill. It was all there for the writers who were to come. That's a measure of the greatness of a theatre. How much does it create? And in so doing, how much does it arouse new creative instincts? In this, the Abbey was great. The writers had the example of the commercial theatre too. There was Ibsen, Granville Barker, the comedies of Pinarow, the fantasies of Barry, and with all that, much that was worthless. But worthless though it might be, each play could teach something of plot construction, design and stagecraft. The new men set their plays between the three walls of the stage, the conventional box set. But in this space were heard jewel sounds of country phrase that writers hadn't appreciated until Singh opened their ears. George Seals was one of these writers, author of, to name one play only, Professor Tim, that was such a great vehicle for F.J. McCormack. This ran for 247 performances in 1925, a long run for a repertory theatre. And after the Abbey had decided, so that more and more people might see their plays, to abolish the custom of ending plays after a run of three weeks, George Shields had the first record-breaking run with The Rugged Path. Starting long before him were people like T.C. Murray and the shrewd and observant master of comedy, Lennox Robinson, who, like Ibsen, had been appointed to direct the stage at an early age. Lennox Robinson's lost leader made completely credible in its time the possibility that Parnell was still alive. His marvel of construction, The White-Headed Boy, is seldom out of production somewhere. The Big House... Killy Craig's in Twilight and Drama at Inish fused all his skills together. After one of his greatest plays, The Strange Church Street, the quality of his writing seemed to decline. He led the early writers, whose creative example was preparing the always expectant stage for Paul Vincent Carroll, Teresa Devey, F.R. Higgins, Dennis Johnson, Frank Carney and Louis Dalton, and later for Walter Mackin, Joseph Tumulty, and M.J. Malloy. But before them, the Abbey had made Sean O'Casey. If the early authors introduced country ways and country speech to Dublin, it was O'Casey who introduced a Dublin of slums, misery, glory, and the shattering phrase, 
to Dublin itself, whose joxers and fluthers unwittingly fathered the inevitable character that shows of stage and radio and television so swiftly bring on, a shiftless, snuffling, slum comic of one sex or the other, whose author relies on phrase and accent to hide smallness of invention, but whose bursted-written ancestry can be traced back to O'Casey. And the Abbey made him. Received the returned play all right. Expected you would not produce a play containing so much propaganda. I shall be only too happy to submit any play I may write to the Abbey. For that theatre, the country, the National Gallery and the Botanic Gardens with certain authors are the only things I worship. Sean O'Casey to Lennox Robinson in April 1922. Five months later, he's arguing... Every thinker has a contempt, more or less, for organised opinion, but he may have a discreet regard for organised action. I know Republican philosophers who have a supreme contempt for the organised opinion of the free state, but who have, when bullets are flying about, a wholesome regard for that opinion in action. Besides, it has often happened that a thinker suddenly leaves his solitude to oppose a general or particular act of injustice. Voltaire did so, and Zola, W.B. Yeats, and A.E. did so in 1913 during the strike. Four years later, 1926, and it's The Plough and the Stars, he's beginning to head away from realism. The directors of the Abbey have insisted on alterations and the cast has objected to certain expressions in the play. I have carefully, and I hope impartially, read The Plough and the Stars, lingering thoughtfully over those passages that have irritated or shocked some members of the cast. And I cannot admit into my mind any reason for either rejection or alteration. The play itself in my opinion, a deadly compromise with the actual, has been further modified by the directorate. But I draw a line at a vigilance committee of the actors. Under the circumstances, and to avoid further trouble, I prefer to withdraw the play altogether. It wasn't withdrawn. But it was a different matter two years later, when the directors suggested that instead of Rejecting his new play, The Silver Tasse, which for various reasons was not acceptable, they'd tell the press that the author had asked them to have it back for revision. As to the suggestion that the directorate would be willing to allow me to withdraw for revision and let that be known to the press, saying that he himself had become dissatisfied and had written to ask it back, I am too big for this sort of mean and petty shuffling, this lousy perversion of the truth. There is going to be no damned secrecy with me concerning the Abbey's rejection of the play. This was the beginning of O'Casey's going to England to carry on his work, and it's a good place to examine what the Abbey had achieved. It had put Ireland on the stage for the Irish and the rest of the world. It had made authors. It had made revolutionaries. 
it was once carried on the wings of revolution. It had drawn people into its stage and around its stage. It had been all things a theatre ought to be. Its influence has spread in America. They keep telling us the little theatre movement that is taking such strong hold came out of our visit there. Every country has recognised it or given our plays. Again and again we meet with authors whose genius was first fed by the enthusiastic support of some non-commercial theatre. The flowering of Chekhov is associated with the Moscow Art Theatre. Sing comes from Dublin's Abbey. Allardyce Nickel. Professor Koch, who founded the Carolina Playmakers in 1919, applied principles which are dearly akin to those of the Abbey Theatre. He approached the drama of the American People's Theatre, even as Yeats and Singh and Lady Gregory had striven for an Irish theatre. The spirit of the Abbey players is ever-present. In Ireland, it was possible to achieve a national theatre within the span of a lifetime. In great, sprawling America, it remains a goal of the future. In England, the Abbey's example helped to found the Leeds Repertory Company, the Birmingham Repertory Theatre, with W.G. Fay of the Abbey producing. Nugent Monk's Meadow Market, the Oxford Playhouse with J.B. Fagan producing, and the Festival Theatre in Cambridge, owned and directed by an Irishman, Terence Gray, with another Irishman, Tyrone Guthrie, producing, and Ninette de Valva, an Irish woman who had produced dances in the Abbey, doing the same thing for plays by Yeats in Cambridge. But though the theatre's reputation and influence grew, at home, at the root of things, it had its critics. Up to round about the beginning of the Second World War, and back almost to its beginnings, a new play at the Abbey caused lively discussion on various levels. And only nine years after the doors had opened, one reads a despairing criticism that could have been written at any time in the theatre's history, so familiar it is, and so sweeping. On all sides, complaints are heard of the general mediocrity of the plays most frequently produced, and the general degeneration of a promising movement. Unless some change is made in the conduct of the Abbey Theatre, we may regard the present situation as the beginning of the end. But the end, and it was a physical end only, didn't come until flames took the theatre in 1951. And the people had always been faithful to it. Fortunately, the common people in which the leaders of the dramatic movement had rested so much faith did not fail them, even when later... The stalls of the Abbey Theatre wanted prose comedy. The Sixpenny Gallery applauded the poetic plays. And there were plays in Irish. Stalls full, pit full, gallery rather weak. But 115 season tickets sold during the evening. It is sad Singh could not have seen In the Shadow of the Glen in its Irish speech. The gallery that supported poetic plays wasn't quite so keen on plays in Irish. But here's something that everyone supported. The Dublin production of Fanny's First Play by Shaw. I did feel proud and satisfied. A theatre of our own, Irish plays, such a fine one by one of our countrymen, company playing it splendidly, all our own. Something to have lived to see. That entry in Lady Gregory's journals has a tailpiece. But there is still a good deal of slackness at the Abbey. Criticism from inside the theatre and from outside it. 
criticism of the later theatre. What a come down for the visitor to Dublin to see a performance that would scarcely pass muster in a provincial German stat theatre. He finds himself the victim of a hoax, a gigantic fraud that has been written into the history books and engaged the general mind. Eric Bentley, who met difficulty when producing a play at the Abbey using a Brechtian technique, from his book In Search of Theatre. Is this fumbling, shambling the Abbey Theatre's famous simplicity? And the audience? Can these people have been trained in theatre going for decades? The tricks they find clever and laugh at are the stock and trade of every old trooper on the road. The things they find strange and boggle at have been accepted in every serious theatre of the world. At the Abbey, everything is sacrosanct, especially that which is indefensible. No theatre can claim to be alive and valuable and escape criticism. It creates passions on the stage and outside it. It creates artists and it loses them. In my generation, and in the generation which has followed mine, one can recall many great Irish artists, a singer or two, one superlative singer, many fine painters, many writers in poetry and prose, perhaps the most remarkable efflorescence of genius during these generations was in the drama. Great plays following great play. Great plays create great players. I think back over the galaxy of great players I have known, Sarah Allgood, Moira O'Neill, Arthur Sinclair, Maureen Delaney, Barry Fitzgerald. Ah, what's the use in telling over their names? You listeners know them as well as I do. But of all the players it has been my privilege to work with, I'm quite certain the greatest was F.J. McCormack. They, Dublin, said that the Abbey was never the same after F.J. McCormack died. And the same thing was probably said of the French stage when Talma died in 1826. Every institution is bound to lose through deaths. The Abbey lost grievously through the death of Singh and McCormack and that last speaker, Lennox Robinson. The Abbey lost when Sarah Allgood and her sister before her went to England and when Maureen Delaney left. But if a theatre is a vital theatre, it never remains the same. It was again Lennox Robinson who said great dramatists make great actors. And if the dramatists and the directors could agree on a play, the stage was always there for the actors. When the Abbey burnt down, he said that he felt the theatre had destroyed itself because its work was done. A theatre's work is never done as long as there are people to write for it. But maybe it had changed too little to be an encouragement to new writers. The early dramatists had worked long and hard, but in a narrow vein. They had worked out the vein, and perhaps tired the people who once regarded it as a vein of golden words. The theatre had made no concessions to modernity, though, having rejected Dennis Johnson's The Old Lady Says No, the directors helped towards its production in the little Peacock Theatre in the same building. This Peacock was an advantageous use of waste space to house an experimental theatre, and it speaks well of the Abbey's future production plans that a new Peacock has been included in the new building. Many new authors had plays staged during the Abbey's exile in the Queen's Theatre, but the Abbey is no longer the Irish playwright's automatic first choice of stage. 
despite its being able to risk losing some money in encouraging the immature. Indeed, it goes further by providing an evening for the student, by combining, as it recently did, O'Casey's apprentice piece, Hall of Healing, with the gunman of his maturity. And what was once a purely Dublin venture now brings in actors and authors from all over the country. But the interest of audiences has now widened to take in fresh authors and fresh groups. The new generation, the new Irish, now feels itself too far from the sort of life that's often evoked on the Abbey stage, or doesn't wish to feel as close to it as it really is. The stage of the new Abbey is waiting for dramatists whose work will be as contemporary and immediate in appeal as the plays of the early dramatists were, for dramatists who will present the increasingly sophisticated lives that are lived in the country today. The lives of the people in, for example, the new mercantile Mercedes Martini set are now as much of the country as our rural populations and they await a dramatist who will examine their structure, fun and interior tensions, their speech, their pretensions and their tragedies with the incisiveness, perception and humanity of St. John Irvine and Murray and Robinson. And this dramatist must come from these new people, for every society creates its artists, and a new stage awaits him. It is the existence of the theatre that has created playwriting among us. The Abbey has moved back to its birthplace. The new building is being given life so that it may resound to all that is good on the stages of the world. Electric motors hum and the curtains part smoothly to reveal the first of the new mysteries. But before that, the writers must have put living words into the actors. Who will write for the new generations? The old Abbey Theatre, as the new begins, was presented by Seamus Brannock with members of the Radio Telefisieron players and the recorded voices of the late John Stevenson and Lennox Robinson. It was written by Norris Davidson. <laughs>